ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, the nation's rental crisis just keeps getting worse. The vacancy rate has hit a historic low, according to one metric, leaving would-be tenants with even fewer options. Also, the Coalition's getting ready to announce its official position on nuclear energy. We'll examine how it stacks up. And the NRL's big gamble in Las Vegas. Did it pay off? He's over! South Sydney scores the first try of the 2024 season. I think absolutely it was a success. You know, this is something the NRL's been talking about for over a decade. Thanks for your company. There was further evidence today Australia's ongoing housing crisis is deepening. The national vacancy rate, that is the percentage of all rental properties that are unoccupied and available to rent, now sits at 0.7%, according to one real estate website. That's a record low. And while a population surge last year caused an increase in demand for rentals, Fundamentally, Australia is simply not building enough dwellings. So what's going wrong? Here's reporter David Taylor. The national vacancy rate has hit a record low of 0.7%, but in Perth and Adelaide, it's hit 0.3%. Nicola Powell is Chief of Research and Economics at Domain. It's challenging, and I think, you know, going back to what you said about a 0.3, that's needling the haystack type stuff. Domain's February vacancy rates report shows it's hard going for renters right across the country. We've got some of our capital cities with much more extreme conditions versus, you know, other cities that are actually better conditions for tenants, still technically a landlord's market, but a higher vacancy rate in Canberra and Darwin sitting at 1.3%. Nicola Powell says record low vacancy rates are being driven by ongoing factors like rapid population growth and rising property prices, leaving more renters stuck in the rental market. But perhaps the biggest problem is the shortage of supply, and that sluggishness was brought into sharp focus today. Bureau of Statistics data shows building approvals fell a further 1% in January, after falling 10% in December. CoreLogic's head of research, Tim Lawless, said the problem is construction companies are reluctant to build because they can't turn a profit. And even though we aren't seeing construction costs rising anywhere near as quickly as they used to be uh, through the worst of the pandemic, they are still rising. They're not going backwards. And this is where some of the challenges come from the building sector is actually uh, having a feasible um, uh, development in place that's going to deliver some level of a profit margin is notoriously difficult now. The problem seems to be most acute in the construction of detached homes, where building approvals slid 9.9% in January to an 11.5-year low. Add to that the fact that we're still seeing very tight labour capacity constraints in the, the building sector. Uh, materials costs for some materials are still very high as well. You can see where some of this this pain is coming from. And it doesn't look like it's turning around uh, at all at the moment. And it's hard to see it turning around anytime soon, to be honest. The government's made building more homes a policy priority, committing to build 1.2 million new homes over five years. Domain's Nicola Powell says speeding up the approvals process at the council level would help achieve this goal. And I think, you know, that starts at that grassroots level around 
reducing red tape. It's about, you know, providing shovel-ready land at affordable prices for developers to actually be able to, you know, for sums to stack up for developers, to be able to come in and actually provide the level of supply. Consultant Melissa Neighbour works with developers in her role as Director of Sky Planning. She says loosening planning controls, or what's allowed to be built on any given site, at the local council level is key to boosting housing supply. Now, there are lots of reasons why planning approvals may be granted and then they don't get built. Um, and, and that's the uh, reality of developing and, and other factors that come into play like construction costs or labour costs or, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, obtaining the right materials and so forth. But that, that just, all that means is that we need to be able to have more planning approvals in the system to allow more sites to stack up. But if we are turning off the tap at the very top of the funnel, which is the planning controls, then we are, we're already at a loss. And for those hopeful renters looking for at least something to cling on to, domain data shows on a national scale the average views per rental listing continued to decrease in February. While it may mean more Australians are sleeping rough, on the flip side, others are choosing to stay at home to save up for a house of their own, says Nicola Powell. People moving back in with mum and dad, consolidating housing, and actually the number of the data that would support that is the number of people per dwelling is rising. So it showcases that that biting of affordability constraints is certainly there. And people are cost-cutting to be able to have shelter or to be able to squirrel away and save to actually buy a home. But it also means, despite the lack of supply, fewer people are inspecting properties, which reduces the competition among renters for existing places. David Taylor there. Political hardheads are still reading into the results of the weekend by-election in the seat of Dunkley in Melbourne's outer southeast. Labor candidate Jody Bellier won the seat despite a 3.5% swing to the Liberals, with both major parties increasing their primary vote. So what does that result tell us about the major parties' strategies moving forward? Amber Jacobs reports. After an exhausting weekend, Jodie Bellier is now a Labor backbencher and the federal member for Dunkley. This morning, she was asked what she thought was the biggest factor driving voters to support her. Look, I think the cost of living was, you know, central uh, to the campaign from the beginning um, because the federal government have been listening to the people of Australia in terms of, you know, the pressures on them and their household budgets. And so I think that was the central uh, anchor for the campaign and the work that, you know, we did and, and what I brought to the community. Despite Jody Bellier's victory for the Labor government, the coalition has been quick to pounce. And according to Liberal Senator Jane Hume, the swing of 3.5% towards the Liberal Party sends a strong message. Well, before the weekend, Dunkley was a safe seat. But on Saturday, Nathan Conroy and the party turned Dunkley into a marginal seat for Labor, and I'd call that a really good sign for the Liberals in Victoria. And there were some real green shoots, I think, for the Liberal Party there. For the first time in uh, about a decade, the Liberal Party increased its primary vote in Dunkley. It's, it's actually the best two-party preferred vote that we've seen since 2016, and that was the last time we won the seat. We've certainly got our tails up after the weekend. There's been plenty of discussion about whether the 3.5% swing against Labor is a good or bad result for the government. 
voter turnout for the Dunkley by-election was just under 80%. That's lower than the 90% in the 2022 election. But by-elections generally attract a lower turnout. Cos Samaras is a director at consultancy group Redbridge. Labor's priority, it's health firm in, in the type of suburbs which it performed well last time. And it looks like that if you factor in turnout, Labor's primary could be actually a little bit higher than it, than it actually ended up on uh, Saturday night. With regards to those who do not turn up to vote, it does skew younger. Factoring that in, we do know that uh, the coalition only gets one in five uh, voters under the age of 40, particularly in Melbourne. And so, yeah, you could say that the Labor Party's primary vote would be a little bit high if this was a normal election. Labor's held the seat since 2019. Prior to that, it was a Liberal seat for more than two decades. While the Liberal Party increased its primary vote, Cos Samaras says that can be put down to a lack of micro-parties running in this by-election. The coalition was able to harvest the votes that initially landed on One Nation and Palmer United at the last federal election. Uh, those two micro-parties did not stand and as a result, those individuals who did vote for them last time opted for the Liberal Party this time. The coalition's increasingly eyeing off outer suburban seats like Dunkley after it lost previously safe inner suburban seats to Teal independence at the last election. It's, it's potentially a preview into the next federal election. Peter Dutton and the coalition uh, have a strategy and it has been focusing on the outer suburbs of, uh, of our large cities, those living in mortgage electorates, mortgage suburbs. So what chance does the Liberal Party have of securing these outer suburban seats? It is really the only seats that they um, have shown any any signs of being able to put Labor under pressure. At the last federal election, the federal seat of Werriwa out of Western Sydney, similar to the sort of suburb that Dunkley has in the northern part of, of the electorate, like Karen Downs, did swing against Labor and towards the Liberal Party in 2022. And Werriwa, before uh, the 12 interest rate rises, was the number one mortgage-stressed electorate in the country. So I still think that they still have a pathway to win a number of seats off Labor, but those seats largely sit in New South Wales and Queensland and Western Australia and Tasmania and not necessarily in Victoria. Cosmaris there from Redbridge, ending that report by Amber Jacobs. Well, the coalition loss in Dunkley has led to a good deal of murmuring within the opposition about the lack of policies put forward so far by the party as we enter an election year. The opposition has, though, been talking up small modular nuclear reactors, SMRs they're called, as a way to reach net zero targets and appears to be edging closer to revealing a more fulsome energy policy. Other developed economies are taking a serious look at the emerging technology as an alternative to fossil fuels, but many energy experts here in Australia say it's an unrealistic option for us. John Daly reports. The coalition is laying the ground for an announcement on energy policy that puts nuclear power in the mix. Small modular reactors or SMRs and other emerging nuclear technologies are expected to be an important part. Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy Ted O'Brien says the coalition is in the advanced stages of developing its policy. We are looking at only the new and emerging technologies and that ranges from micro reactors to small modular reactors and also large reactors. So long as we're only talking about the new and emerging stuff, no one wants the old sort of Soviet era technologies in Australia. Now, looking globally, there are still no, I guess, commercially operating 
SMRs or small modular reactors. Is it is it too early to to pin an energy policy on this technology before it's been proven? Well, keep in mind, our uh, energy policy won't be pinning itself on any one technology. In fact, unlike the Labor Party, we are taking an all-of-the-above approach where all technologies should be duly considered and on the table. But this technology Uh, hasn't been proven yet, and and, and a lot of the other technologies like solar and wind have. Why why nuclear uh, at this point? So, uh, again, learning from other countries, um, nuclear is an important part of the mix. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese told Adelaide's 5AA that the opposition's plans for nuclear power don't stack up. This is just an excuse for inaction on cheaper and cleaner energy. So there's still a moratorium on nuclear energy in Australia, brought in under the Howard government. The coalition now sees emerging nuclear technologies as a potential way to decarbonise the electricity network and win back voters who are worried about climate change. Businessman Simon Holmes are caught financially backed the activist group Climate 200, which was instrumental in helping independent Teal candidates take Liberal-held seats at the last election. He's now on the board of the Smart Energy Council, and he says the coalition's nuclear ambitions have no substance. Well, this is not new. We've seen this before, both with the carbon capture and storage push and the uh, the heli-clean coal. But in all these situations, and, and SMRs are just the latest, I mean, we must remember SMRs, don't actually exist in a commercial form. Now, this is just uh, another effort by the coalition to put something up in place of an energy policy, hoping that no one notices. International support for nuclear energy is growing. At COP28 in December, 22 countries pledged to triple nuclear energy generation by 2050, including the US, Canada, Japan, the UK and France. While those countries are politically and economically similar to Australia... Victoria University energy economist Bruce Mountain says there are some key differences. Particularly in countries with cold winters and hence heating demand, and those that suffer from variability in wind and solar supply, particularly northern hemisphere countries. The amount of uh, storage resource that you would need if you didn't have access to hydro capacity, and hydro tends to be built out just about everywhere, is absolutely enormous. So I think unless you have a dispatchable zero carbon fuel, a decarbonisation of electricity supply to zero in many northern hemisphere countries is simply not, not actually plausible. I think it's quite true to point to intrinsic advantages that um, Australia has. We have essentially decent wind or good wind just about everywhere and decent sun almost everywhere other than Victoria to some degree and even there not hugely we do not have a big winter heating demand so the same factors that drive the ardent search for nuclear in the northern hemisphere do not exist in quite the same way in the um, southern hemisphere. Bruce Mountain says small-scale nuclear shouldn't be ruled out entirely though and the merit of the coalition's nuclear energy policy will depend on the approach. I don't quite know what the policy is. If the policy is uh, small modular and we're going to halt any further installation of wind and solar while we wait to see whether small modular is going to be a thing, I think that would be unwise. That's Victoria University energy economist Bruce Mountain ending that report from John Daly. You're listening to PM with me, David Lipson. Coming up, claims we've underestimated the threat red imported fire ants pose to the economy and the environment. The leaders of nine Southeast Asian 
Nations have converged on Melbourne for the ASEAN summit as the Prime Minister embarks on a whirlwind tour of diplomacy there. This afternoon, Anthony Albanese met with Malaysian Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim, signing several new agreements. It all comes at a critical time for security in the region as China continues to flex its muscles, both in terms of investment in Southeast Asia and the strength of its maritime fleet. Foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jedgetts is there. Stephen, so take us through the main announcements out of this Malaysia meeting and how did the two Prime Ministers deal with some of the more contentious issues? Well, David, there were quite a few modest but worthy announcements out of this meeting. Australia and Malaysia striking new agreements and MOUs on things like cybersecurity, uh, maritime cooperation and education. Now, all very worthwhile, nothing earth-shattering, but another sign that uh, the two countries are slowly inching closer together. Of course, both countries are also intent on building up broader economic ties, and I think we might hear more on that front over, over the next coming days. Uh, but there were still quite a few slightly more difficult issues that uh, had to be covered. Now, on the top of that list is no doubt the situation in Gaza. Indonesia and Malaysia in particular, amongst Southeast Asian nations, have made it very clear that they're deeply unhappy with the broader response of the West to this crisis, largely the US, but not just the US. They believe there's a double standard at play. And one of the main talking points here is how Australia and nations like Malaysia and Indonesia will come to an agreement on what sort of language they should use on Israel and Gaza at the end of this. Now, the Prime Minister Anwar seemed to indicate there was a compromise at play, that both sides would agree to call for a ceasefire uh, and for humanitarian assistance in Gaza without going to what Mr Anwar called contentious issues mm. around exactly uh, what Israel's rights and uh, responsibilities are in the region. Now, the other question, of course, that hangs over this is the broader strategic competition in the region. Australia has been trying to marshal support for establishing what Penny Wong calls rules uh, and norms in the region that would make it harder for China to do what it's currently doing in the South China Sea, militarising features, uh, harassing Filipino fishing vessels there and the like. And while Ibrahim, though Malaysia's Prime Minister, made it very clear that he did not necessarily share the West's or Australia's concerns, or at least the depths of its concerns about China. China's behaviour, also making it clear that he has no interest in being pulled together in any sort of coalition against Beijing. Let's listen to what the Prime Minister had to say. We are fiercely independent. We do not want to be dictated by any force. So whilst we remain to be an important uh, friend um, to the United States or Europe and here in Australia, they should not um, preclude us from being friendly to one of our important neighbours, precisely China. Well, that was the context. And if they have problems with China, they should not impose it upon us. We do not have a problem with China. Yeah, a very clear message there from the Malaysian leader Anwar Ibrahim. Stephen, there is, though, of course, a fraught backdrop to this meeting. How does the strategic competition we're seeing play out right now impact the events? Well, Malaysia or Malaysia's Prime Minister might be relatively relaxed about Beijing's presence in the region and its behaviour, but others are not. We saw, for example, last week the President of the Philippines uh, basically declaring that he would not back down 
against uh, China in his country's increasingly tense confrontations uh, with Beijing in disputed territories in the South China Sea. Territories, it's worth adding, David, uh, that uh, an international body found in 2016 China has no right to claim over. Uh, but look, Australia has to walk a tightrope here. It doesn't want to in any way repel uh, leaders like Anwar Ibrahim uh, and, and, and court controversy, but it also wants the, the meeting to send as clear a message as possible to, to China that its actions are destabilising and potentially escalatory. Now, the Foreign Minister Penny Wong had to tread that fine line in her speech earlier today when she talked about regional security and maritime cooperation between Australia and the region. This is how she put it in her speech to the ASEAN Australia Summit earlier today. The legal order for the seas and the oceans. We face destabilising, provocative and coercive actions, including unsafe conduct at sea and in the air and militarisation of disputed features. We know that military power is expanding, but measures to constrain military conflict are not and there are few concrete mechanisms for averting it. So these factors give rise to the most strategic, most confronting circumstances in our region for decades. That's the Foreign Minister Penny Wong and before her Stephen Jedgetts, our Foreign Affairs reporter. You would have heard about red imported fire ants, one of the new and emerging threats to our native environment and our crops. A Senate inquiry into the insidious insects got underway today, examining the cost and the impact of the pest on health, agriculture and the environment. The Invasive Species Council says governments have underestimated the significant threat they pose to the environment and the economy and has called for urgent changes to eradication efforts. Anna Pikett reports. Cameron Moore found out the hard way that he had an out-of-control fire ant infestation on his property. So I was watering the garden one day and all of a sudden I sort of sort of felt this sort of stinging sensation on my feet and I looked down and they were uh, covered in ants. He lives in New Beef, south of Brisbane, with his young family. And I sort of realised straight away they weren't the normal type little black ants or green ants that I'm used to. So I quickly hosed them off. So in the next hour or so, all these really itchy kind of welts came up, about eight or nine on each foot. Then once the sort of stinging eased, then both feet started to swell and became quite itchy. I went to the doctor and, yeah, I got put on antihistamines and, uh, yeah, pretty much had swollen feet for the best part of five days afterwards. Cameron has since discovered more than 20 nests on his property after his first encounter about a year and a half ago. And fire ants have also been discovered on Queensland's Stradbrook Island. Dan Carter is Environmental Specialist Officer from the Kwandamooka Yulaburabi Aboriginal Corporation. We've had over 100 odd nests found in the last 12 months that are now being treated. What kind of problems are the fire ants causing? But primarily the risk and threat for Kwandamooka people is the impact in terms of lifestyle, being able to actually recreate in the backyard, but also gives the impact on native wildlife, damaging the um, ecological values that um, quantum mega people hold dearly. The first colony of the ants, originally from South America, was detected in Brisbane in 2001. But since then, the pests have moved rapidly, now being detected as far south as Ballina in northern New South Wales. The insects are a reddish-brown colour, measured 2 to 6 millimetres, and can be aggressive when disturbed. 
Today, public hearings began in Brisbane with an inquiry investigating the expected costs and impacts of the pest on human health, agriculture, infrastructure and the environment. Dr Pam Swepson is a former employee with the National Fire Ant Eradication Programme. They are one of the world's worst invasive species. Um, they can walk, they can fly, they can swim. They have never been eradicated from any country that they have invaded. Dr Swepson says fire ant stings can be fatal. If a little toddler falls onto a nest which just looks like a pile of dirt, the ants will swarm them and sting them repeatedly. And if a person happens to be allergic to this thing, they can go into anaphylaxis and die. National allergy bodies are calling for a more widespread and immediate eradication program for fire ants, with fears up to 174,000 people could develop severe allergic reactions to the insect's bite if it became endemic in Australia. The Federal Agriculture Department has been working alongside state and territory governments with the National Fire Ant Eradication Programme in an attempt to contain, eradicate and suppress the pests for more than two decades. But Dr Pam Swepson has today told the inquiry Australia's outbreak could have been more contained if more precautions were taken sooner. There have been long-term concerns that this programme has gone on for 20 years and it's cost a billion dollars. And there's no real evidence that it's made any difference and it's spreading out of control. In a statement to PM, the federal government says it remains committed to continuing efforts to eradicate fire ants from Australia, demonstrated by Canberra's significant investment over the last 20 years of 50% of the total nationally cost-shared budget for the program, over $640 million. But back in New Beef, Cameron Moore doubts the pests will ever be eliminated. With the amount of nests that I've seen just literally within a 10-15 minute walk of where I live, I'm hesitant to get too confident that they'll be able to come up with an effective solution. Another public hearing will be held in Newcastle tomorrow with a final report due to be handed down in April. And a pike there. Australian rugby league fans and players are slowly making their way home after an historic weekend in Las Vegas. The league hopes it marks the start of America's love affair with the game and can fill a void during the NFL's off-season. So was it just a novelty? And what of the fact the event was held in a city world-famous for gambling? Angus Randall reports. Ladies and gentlemen, the 2024 National Rugby League season begins with a roar from a crowd in Las Vegas. Three weeks ago, the names on every American sports fan's lips were Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Now, in the same Las Vegas stadium that hosted the Super Bowl, they're screaming for NRL stars Luke Brooks, Jason Saab and Latrell Mitchell. Jason Saab hurls the ball into the northern stand. The NRL doubleheader held in Las Vegas over the weekend were the first ever games played for premiership points outside Australia and New Zealand. Australian Rugby League chairman Peter Volandis told Fox Sports the league will return to the US every year for the next four years. We're coming back. This, this is just the foundation. It's like building a house. You've now done the foundation. We've sent a benchmark. We've got to improve from here next year. But it's not going to happen in the in the 12 months. It's going to take three or four years. Just over 40,000 people attended the doubleheader in Vegas. ABC presenter Rod Quinn was there. He says most of the crowd were Aussies. There might have been eight, five, eight, ten thousand 10,000 locals, which is fantastic as well. 
And the whole thing was just such a great vibe. The US TV viewing figures have not yet come in, but in a sign of American priorities, the game was suddenly bumped to a secondary channel in the US because a college basketball game went into overtime. Dr Hunter Fujak is a senior lecturer in sports management at Deakin University. I think absolutely it was a success. You know, this is something the NRL has been talking about for over a decade. And so to actually manifest it and all the logistics involved, even from creating goalposts in America or, or having that many people fly out, so I think it's certainly a success when we measure it by the first attendance it received. He says it's not just about spectators and TV viewers. One of the biggest appeals of the US market is the millions of gamblers. America has only recently begun to legalise gambling state by state and uh, specifically sport betting over there. And so, for instance, in the Super Bowl, $27 billion alone was, was gambled on that one particular game. Um, and obviously, given the size of America economically and population-wise, there's a, a burgeoning market for gambling that the NRL is looking to potentially exploit. Any American who fell in love with the game at the weekend now has a few challenges ahead. Most games are played late at night or early in the morning US time, and it's $200 for an NRL TV subscription. The University of Queensland's Sharan Fairley has previously worked with the AFL to investigate how to expand that sport in the US. So the AFL or any uh, Australian or foreign sport faces quite a few issues when trying to get into the States. So firstly, it's a saturated market. So really, we've got basketball, football, hockey and baseball that dominate the American sporting scape. And so any sport trying to get over there is already competing with eyeballs on those other sports, both in the professional level and at the college level. She says if the NRL is serious about breaking into the American market, it needs to think small. In terms of trying to cut through um, to the American market, things like you know, going back a few steps and, for example, putting the game in the schools provide some free equipment, get schools interested in it, and then you're actually getting people familiar with the sport at kind of a younger age, and then that gets families interested. So you're kind of going grassroots rather than going at the professional level because, again, with the professional level, there's a lot of competition. But really we need to kind of tap into American culture rather than trying to say, here's our Aussie sport, be interested in that. Do you think the weekend was a success? Uh, it depends on how you define it. I think it was interesting to watch. Um, I think it was an interesting experiment. Um, obviously, it's part of a five-year plan. But did it really generate American interest? I would be somewhat doubtful if it did. The rest of the NRL's first round starts on Thursday in Newcastle. Angus Randall there. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us. Good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Have you ever struggled to get a response from an insurer or have they fought you on the details of the claim? Well, customers are increasingly calling them out for not paying out. Today, investigative reporter Adele Ferguson reveals the dirty tricks of insurance companies. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener. app.